0: Amen. What I want to do tonight is uh, something a little bit different. Um, I think Jay mentioned last week that I was going to bring a message about the Sermon on the Mount, and that wasn't his fault that he said that that's what I had told him. but we finished the Beatitudes and I want to transition to the advent season because I always get really excited about this time of year and talking about the incarnation of Christ and so I like to talk about and preach about what i'm excited about so that's what I want to do here tonight and uh, so I want to uh, uh, speak about uh, the incarnation of Jesus tonight. But what I want to do is talk about some qu- common questions uh, that are asked this time of year. Uh, Christmas is a time of mystery. Um, I think we all recognize that there's mystery to it, but it's a time of great majesty. And I love this time of year. It, it exalts Christ, even his, in his humiliation uh, to come down here and, and take on human flesh. There's an exaltation of his person. I love to read read great quotes this time of year. Uh, Augustine made this statement. He said, filling the world, he lives in a manger. (laughs) You Think about that. I mean, you know, that Jesus fills the world. I mean, he's created everything. He fills the world that he lives in a manger. Uh, There's another statement by uh, Spurgeon that I've I've said many times here at Christmas, and that is, he that made man was made man. You think about just the, the mystery and the majesty of just those kind of statements. The one who made man. Was made man and became. I'm a creature. Um, Christmas, obviously. I mean, I think it's the most wonderful, enchanting time of the year. But it's a time of year that can be filled with a lot of questions. And I think a lot of people ask questions just about their own lives. They're with family, and maybe they're away from family, and they're lonely. Um, people ask a lot of questions. I think a lot of um, uh, transcendent questions this time of year. But it also is a time when children ask a lot of questions. You know, why are there so many lights on houses? Uh, where did we get this Christmas tree ornament? Um, you know, it's a, an interesting time. As, and I've got my two grandkids that are four and two. You know, they're beginning to just kind of see this for the first time. And there's a beautiful innocence about a lot of the questions they ask. Um, you know, is Santa real? You know, kids begin to ask you that. And that's always the great dilemma for parents. Do you become a liar? Or, you know, how, how do you handle that whole deal, you know? I mean, who's going to wrap the Christmas gifts? You know, what does a candy cane represent? On and on you could go. But the number one question I think that gets asked this time of year by children is, when do we open the presents, right? So our grandkids are going to come stay with us this weekend. And I know that's, you know, getting bombarded with that constantly, you know, looking over at those presents, wanting to know when they're going to get to dig into them. Uh, But, you know, the first Christmas was uh, filled with questions also by some of the main characters, now, Zechariah, back in, in Luke chapter 1, says this. He says, how shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. When he's told he's going to have a son. Now, how can I know this is going to happen? Uh, Mary, you remember when the angel appears to her, she asks a question. She says, how can this be? For I'm a virgin. Uh, the wise men um, ask that great question. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship Him. So the first Christmas was filled with questions, and I think every Christmas since then has been as well. And I found over the years that people have a lot of questions uh, about Christmas, a lot of questions surround this time of year. Now, probably the greatest question that any of us can think about is how can Jesus be God and man? He he veiled His deity, but He didn't void His deity. And to me, the, the greatest thing really in all of theology to think about is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. It's often called the hypostatic union. Now, that's a big word, but hypostasis has the idea of a person. So hypostatic union means the personal union of two natures in one person in Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that boggles our minds. We'll never grasp it, maybe for all of eternity. But Jesus existed as the second member of the triune Godhead for all of eternity. But when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, something was added to the second member of the triune Godhead that had never been there before. And what was added was a human nature. And Jesus is God and man in perpetuity, that is forever. So the one who sits in heaven today is still uh, the God-man, the Lord Jesus. So he's not all man and no God. He's not all God and no man. He's not part man and part God. He is a God-man. And that question right there is one that we'll never be able to get our minds around, but we believe that it's true. And Jesus had to be God and man in order to satisfy uh, God's wrath against our sins. He had to be God but He had to be man because only man should pay for man's sin. So, in the unique person of the Lord Jesus, God and man, we have the uniquely qualified person to come and pay uh, the price for our sins. But, you know, that's the greatest question and mystery, I think, of all. But people ask, you know, the question, was Jesus born in Bethlehem? A lot of modern scholars now today are saying that Jesus was born in Nazareth. The old little town of Nazareth doesn't sound quite as good as the old little town of Bethlehem. And, uh, you know, of course, what they do is they basically come and they substitute their judgment today for the judgment of, and the historical record written right after Jesus was born or not long after it in the gospels. And they come along and somehow they know better. And, and the whole issue is they'll say, well, Jesus was called a Nazarene. You know, it says he's from Nazareth. Well, it doesn't mean he was born there. Um, you know, someone could say they're from Oklahoma City, but they could have been born in Kansas City, and you know, they could have lived here all their life after that. So, there's all these questions that surround his birth, and you know, every year these come up with scholars. Um, one question that comes up: Why did Mary and Joseph wait so long to go to Bethlehem? You know, until she was ready to to give birth. Uh, was Jesus born in a stable? We'll talk about that a little bit here tonight. Was He, you know, what's a manger? I remember when I was a little boy in the King James Version swaddling clothes, you just wonder, what in the world is that? You know, it's just some cloths, you know, that He was placed in. Um, next Sunday, the next two weeks, actually, in our, st- our study we're doing in Matthew's Gospel of the Incarnation, we'll answer a lot of other questions about the virgin birth, um, about the wise men. You, Who were they? Uh, Were there three of them? Uh, What was the star? That's always one of the questions everyone asks. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. How did the wise men associate the star with Jesus? So on and on we could go. But what I want to do this evening is answer uh, some common questions we hear this time of year. Now, when I say common questions, there's one of them in there that's probably not very common. And that's a a question of whether Luke made a mistake in Luke chapter 2 and verse 2. But otherwise, a lot of these other questions are pretty commonly asked ones. Now, tonight is not going to be so much preaching a sermon. It's going to be a little more teaching and just information. But the reason I want to do this is a lot of you, if you're like our family, you gather around this time of year, and I hope you do this before you read presents or maybe you have Christmas dinner or whatever that is, to take one of the portions in the Gospels and read that as a family. My dad started that when we were really young, you know, and everybody's there just, you know, chomping at the bit to get these presents open and kind of makes everybody sit down for a few minutes and we'll read one of the accounts either in Matthew or in Luke and uh, would, would make a few comments and would pray. And what I find is when you read these stories If there's a a few simple things you know and some questions you can answer, you can really kind of fill in some information for people in your family who may be there, again, extended family who don't know the Lord or believers who don't know very much about the Scripture. And so, again, it's not like you're going to go in there and give a, you know, a 30-minute Bible lecture on these things, but some of these are just kind of some brief points you can make and some questions you can answer along the way that I think will kind of fill in and kind of enrich and kind of make the story more more in full color than, than, than maybe black and white as it often is to us. So we'll all be talking about this story with our children, our grandchildren, with our friends. And uh, again, some of these basic questions that people ask, if we have a, a little bit of an understanding and an answer for them, I think it may help them. Now, one question that always comes up, and uh, it's not quite as much now maybe as it used to be, but it still comes up in some circles, is should I even celebrate Christmas, Right? You know, because people will often say, you know, Christmas arose out of pagan celebrations. And uh, so did Easter, you know, as well, from a start and other goddesses and others. So a lot of people will ask the question, you know, should we even uh, celebrate Christmas at all? Now, I, I every year I try to get two or three books on Christmas. I got probably 30 or 40 books on Christmas now. And I bought a couple this year and read through them. And uh, one of them, I want to read a few things out of here, because I I learned quite a bit about, just a little bit about the history of how Christmas developed to where it is today. So I want to read a few things in this book for you. It's a a book by uh, Ace Collins. It's called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. Again, you might even want to get a book like this and read a few things to your family out of it. But uh, it says this, only in relatively recent times, the past 200 years, has Christmas even been celebrated by most Christians. In most of the world, especially in England and America, Christmas was not a time of worship, prayer, and reflection. It was a day set aside to sing body songs, drink rum, and riot in the streets. Now, if you knew that or not. For centuries, Christmas was anything but a holy day. It was the most uh, sinful parade of excess, a day set aside for ignoring laws and even terrorizing citizens. There's kind of like a a mixture of, of, uh, they, they say Christmas and Mardi Gras or something kind of in early times. It says, those who attended church did so in wild costumes. This was early on. The messages of many priests were anything but scriptural, and gambling was common during the services. After church, the poor stormed the homes of the elite in mob-like fashion, pounding on doors and windows, demanding the finest food and drink. If the host did not respond, they broke into the homes and took everything that they wanted. Now, the book goes on and it talks about how the Phrygia, the, uh, the which is uh, Modern-day Turkey, the birth of the sun god Attis was celebrated on December 25th, and there were a lot of celebrations this time of year because obviously it was the darkest, shortest time of year, and so there were a lot of festivals d- dedicated to uh, different gods during that period of time. But the early church didn't actually celebrate Christmas at all until uh, 125 A.D., and it wasn't until uh, three about 330 A.D. that Pope Julius um, growing tired of seeing the, the birth of Jesus celebrated on different days, actually made it on uh, December of the 25th. And five years later, Constantine the Great introduced Christmas as this immovable day of, of December the 25th. And so uh, that's kind of how a little bit of this came about. Um, here's a couple other quotes I thought were fascinating. It says, But change didn't come quickly. People didn't want to give up these pagan celebrations. Another quote that I love is, with the birth of Christ going head-to-head against pagan celebrations, many chose to celebrate the pagan holiday and just go ahead and repent after the parties were finished. Some Christians who did choose to mark Christ's birth did so in the same fashion that pagans honored Saturn and other gods with wild carousing and sinful behavior. So when Oliver Cromwell comes along as Lord Protector of of England in the 1600s, he outlaws Christmas celebrations completely. It's so bad. And um, they would. After he dies, though, it comes back again, and there's all these, uh, you know, drunken celebrations. And you know that song, We Wish You a Merry Christmas? There's that line in there, uh, we won't go until we get some, or we won't leave until we get some. It says that uh, large bands of men would go to upper-class homes demanding food, drink, and money, and if they didn't comply, then they would loot their houses, When the old carol mentions the singers want pudding and saying, we won't leave until we get some, that's what it's talking about. That's going to these rich people's houses. We're not going to leave until you give us. So it's basically like a riot that was taking place. So, you know, women and children wouldn't even go outside in London during, during these periods of time. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but beginning with the landing of Englishmen at Plymouth Rock in 1620, Christmas was banned throughout New England. And those laws were in effect for 150 years in America. It was banned from celebrating uh, Christmas. And it was largely ignored during that period of time. And so basically in America and England, Christmas was kind of an excuse to party. But in Germany, they celebrated really in a a sober and more holy way uh, the birth of Christ. And so when Queen Victoria married her cousin, Prince Albert from Germany in 1840 a lot of the German traditions came to England and it began to be a little bit more like what we see today. But basically in America, the modern celebration of Christmas we know today, a lot of it, most people will say, goes back to Christmas Eve 1822 when Clement Clark Moore wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas or The Night Before Christmas. That's kind of what a lot of the traditions we have now came along. And also when Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in 1834, So it's kind of a little bit of history of how things got to where they are today, but after 18 centuries of all but ignoring that day, churches began to open their doors for believers to worship and sing songs and uh, to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus. So a lot of people are right when they point out that there's a lot of paganism and, and ungodly behavior associated with this, but my feeling about Christmas is, Isn't it wonderful to get together and talk about the incarnation of Jesus? Uh, You know, we could do do it all year. It's not the only time we think about Jesus becoming a man, but the same thing to me with Easter. How wonderful to have a time of year when we come together and talk about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, David Levy, in in this uh, month's edition of uh, Friends of Israel magazine, um, he said this about the whole idea of uh, Christmas being a pagan holiday. He says, Christmas, a pagan holiday? It can be if we let it be. But when I sit in a coffee shop at the mall at Christmas time, I can't help noticing Christmas carols playing in the background. Every year, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation broadcasts Handel's Messiah. Both sides of our family are at best nominal Christians, yet every year they ask me to read the Christmas story as we gather together to celebrate Christmas. My Muslim and Jewish friends make it a point to wish me a hearty Merry Christmas. It is one time of the year where it seems politically correct to publicly proclaim the good news that the Messiah was manifested in the flesh. He and he alone is the reason we celebrate Christmas as we thank God for the incarnation. So my feeling is let's, let's lay hold of this and leverage this time of year when people are thinking about this, and let's tell people the real truth about who Jesus is and why he came. So again, if there are people who are Christians that don't want to celebrate uh, Christmas, it's fine with me. It doesn't bother me at all. But uh, I think it's a good thing for us to use for the gospel. Now, another question you get asked a lot this time of year is, "What what year was Jesus born?" Or, as you notice in the outline I have it, "Was Jesus born BC? Was Jesus born before Christ?" You say, "Well, how could Jesus have been born before Christ?" I mean, he is Christ, right? I mean, how could that possibly be? Well. It's an interesting question that goes back kind of to the heart of of our modern day calendar. And just to give a little bit of um, history about this, in in AD 525, Pope John I was wanting to extend the existing Easter tables for 95 years. Back in the early church, they they had to figure out every year what day was going to be Easter, right? What Sunday was going to be Easter. And finally, they came up with, I think the dates are the earliest it can be with what we use now is March 22nd, and the latest it can be is April 25th. But he wanted to extend these tables out because, again, people were using different days in the early church. So he, he found a guy that was a mathematician, an astronomer, a, a bright guy named Dionysius Exodus. Now, the word exegus means little or small. So some people think Dionysius was a small man, but probably he took that title himself, the idea of small or little, to to express his humility, a kind of a self-deprecating term for himself. Now, the the, uh, equivalent in our language to the word Dionysius is the name Dennis. So some people have affectionately called Dionysius Exodus little Dennis, so we can call him that if we want to. So Little Dennis was a, a Scythian monk from the area of Romania. And uh, actually, Easter is still calculated today using the method that he came up with. And part of the purpose of figuring out these Easter tables was to unite the Eastern and Western church because they had different dates all the time. And in the course of determining the date of Easter, he created basically, Dionysius Exegus did, the Christian era calendar. But the problem is he dated the birth of Christ according to the Roman system that they'd been using 754 years after the founding of Rome. And the date they used back then was AUC based on some Latin words. So 754 AUC was the, the, the date of, of Jesus' birth. So he invented, Dionysius Exegus invented BC and AD. Before Christ and Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord. So he used the old, you know, Roman method of reckoning. He figured Jesus' birth at 754 AUC, and he made that AD 1 on the calendar. Because they didn't have a zero. So he you went know, from, you know, BC 1 to AD 1. So it's, it's obviously kind of messed up from the start. But the problem is later research determined the, date, the, the latest date for the death of King Herod was 750 AUC. So Dionysius exodus was off a few years. So that puts the death of Herod then in 4 BC. So we know that King Herod died from some other writings of Josephus and others in the spring, March or April in, in 4 BC. Now Matthew 2, 1 and Luke 1, 5 put the birth of Jesus before the death of Herod, Right. So if Herod dies in, in March or April of 4 B.C., Jesus has to be born before that time. And since that's been discovered, there's been all kinds of dates for Jesus' birth. All the way back, even some people put it as early as 20 B.C. Other people at 11 B.C. in different places. Now the problem with that is, again, you've got a lot of data you have to, to, to cover, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 3, 23, it says when Jesus begins his ministry, it says Jesus being about 30 years of age. Well, by any account of when he started his ministry, he can't have been born in 20 BC or he'd be way, way older than that. So when you put all of this together, the, the people that I trust the most, the, the cr- uh, cr- chronologers, they say probably Jesus was born in late uh 5 BC, around December, or early uh, 4 BC in January or something of of that period of time. So that's when I think that that Jesus was born. So that's why it confuses people when you say, well, I think Jesus was born in 5 BC. Well, how's he born five years before Christ? Well, the calendar was off. So Dionysius exodus, he did a lot of good stuff. Yeah, we can criticize him, but if I would have figured it out, I mean, who knows what it would have been? You know, 20 years, the thing would have been all messed up. So we appreciate the work that he did. So Jesus was born late, late uh, five, early four BC. Now another question always comes up this comment time of year was Jesus born on December the 25th? Well, just as the year of his birth wasn't you know stated specifically in the Bible, the date of his birth isn't stated clearly either. So people say, well, how did we come up with December the 25th? Well, it goes back pretty early. A man named Hippolytus, or Hippolytus, who was bishop of Rome, established that date, or mentions the date, in in around A.D. 200. So really early on. The problem, though, was the Eastern Church had the birth of Jesus on January the 6th, and also had that as the, the visit of the Magi. But a guy named Chrysostom comes along in 386, And he declares that December 25th is the correct date. So the Western Church adopts that date, and so does the Eastern Church. But the Eastern Church still believes the wise men came on January 6th, and they think Jesus was baptized on January 6th and did his first miracle on January 6th. So they got a lot on that day. But it's kind of with the time of Chrysostom that that date gets set of December 25th. Now, When I was growing up and I was in church and people would talk about the day Jesus was born, I would always hear people say Jesus could not have been born on December 25th because shepherds did not have their flocks out at night in the winter. So he had to be born earlier and people would always date it around October or something like that. And that's what I used to say because, you know, people I really respected, that's what they would tell me. They would say, it's impossible. Jesus was born in December and so it had to be much earlier. But I've got the book uh, up here with me, and again, I've mentioned this book I know before, but it's a great book, and it it sounds a lot more complicated than it is. It's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer. It's a a great scholar down at Dallas Seminary. Um, A really good book. it's, It's got all the information about Jesus' Uh, birthday, the day of his birth, um, how long his ministry lasted, the day of his death, the day of his resurrection, just kind of all these chronological aspects. And here's what he says, and, and this is really convincing, I think, and others have said this too, but he says, um, the one objection raised for the winter date is the fact of the shepherd November until March, and we're not in the fields at night. However, this is not conclusive evidence against December being the time of Christ's birth for the following reasons. First, it could have been a mild winter and the shepherds would have been outside with their sheep. Second, it was not at all certain that sheep were brought under cover during the winter months. I mean, it's not something that was universal. Third, it's true that during the winter months, the sheep were brought in from the wilderness, but the Lucan narrative states that the shepherds were around Bethlehem, they weren't in the wilderness thus indicating the nativity was in the winter months. Because they weren't out in the wilderness, they were near Bethlehem, which would indicate it was the winter. It's actually the opposite argument. He says, finally, the Jewish Mishnah implies that the sheep around Bethlehem were outside all year. And those that were worthy for the Passover offerings were in the fields 30 days before the feast, which would be as early as February, one of the coldest and rainiest months of the year. He says, therefore, a December date for the nativity is acceptable. Now, we don't know it for sure, but this, th- this uh, research he's done at least goes against the idea that it couldn't have been uh, during that time. So he believes that actually a midwinter birth for Jesus is actually the most likely time for it to happen. Now, I wonder in my own mind, and again, this is total speculation, but you you see men like Hippolytus, who's Bishop of Rome, uh, Chrysostom, these were godly men. Could it be that God, in his providence had these guys stumble upon the right date you know to celebrate this? now, you know, we don't have the bones of Jesus and his cross or or I mean the bones of Peter and Jesus' cross and all those kinds of things. So God hasn't left a lot of relics around and the day itself is not that significant, but certainly we could say that a midwinter date fits well, and there's nothing that prohibits it from being on December 25th. And I kind of like to think that that's the day anyway, I guess. I'm just kind of sentimental like that. So, but, but when people will say to you, you know, Jesus cannot have been born in December, that's not historically accurate. So again, we don't know the date exactly, but that date's not prohibited. Now, another point, and I want to mention this, this is something that many of you may have never heard this, but if you hang around people that are, that are critics or atheists or people that are skeptics about the Bible, they'll often point out a passage in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2 and verse 2. This is the, the well-known uh, birth narrative of Jesus. You know, now it came about in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, again, without going into all the details of this, there's two points that people will make that that they say are incorrect. One is, they'll say that during the reign of Caesar Augustus, there was no general census that all the world be taxed. And you know, the reason they had a census back then was to count everybody so they could know who everyone was and how many people there were for the purpose of taxation, it's always been about the money, right? But What we know, though, is that during the reign of Augustus, there were many censuses that were taken. And again, what people will say is, it's true, there wasn't one general proclamation that Augustus made at one given time that everybody be taxed, but during his reign in a, in a period of time, there were lots of censuses that were taken in Gaul, modern-day France, in Egypt, I'm in Cyrene in North Africa around this time. There were censuses that were taken, so probably he makes this proclamation, and these censuses happen uh, then at, at different times. But the real problem here is it says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now what we know is Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria until about six or seven, about six and seven A.D. is when he was governor. So to solve this problem, some scholars have said, well, maybe Quirinius had served as governor twice, you know, once around 6 to 7, 8 to 7 BC, and then later again. But again, critics will say, well, there's no evidence of that. And others will say, well, but there's no evidence against it. But that's not the best kind of argument you want to make. So they'll say, well, this is the first of two censuses that he took, and and there's a lot of ways people come to explain this, but the best explanation I've read, and I think it's, it's very simple, is the word first there, it's the word protos in Greek, can also mean before. And so you can translate it, this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. So, before Quirinius became governor, there was a census taken then. This was the census taken before he became governor. So, it simplifies and and gets rid of the, the idea that Luke made a historical blunder. You know, one of the issues here is when you read Luke's gospel, all the way back at the beginning, Luke tells us that he went and found eyewitnesses, and he interviewed people, and wrote everything down in consecutive order. He was very careful And it seems really unlikely that Luke, who was a historian, he was a doctor, that he would make a blunder like this, you know, of not knowing when this census was taken. So when we say that this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria, it smooths out uh, all of these details. And, And several people have pointed out that it makes a lot of sense that Um, Augustus would have ordered the census to be taken in Judea during this time because Herod was getting older, and he was very unstable, and he was ill. And if you know anything about Herod, he changed his will numerous times. And every time he changed his will, scholars will tell us, he had to get permission from Caesar. So Caesar knew all these times that Herod's changing his will, and it made him very suspicious of Herod. And he was probably wanting to get a census done before Herod died, and it was divided among his sons, so he would know exactly what was going on there, where people were, and what the amount of taxation would be. So it makes a lot of sense there would be that there would be this counting of people during that time. So that's kind of the you know the kind of thing when you're reading down through uh, you know Luke's gospel here on the Christmas story with your family. Uh, You may have some uh, you know family member who likes to point out problems with the Bible. You can just read it, you know, this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor in Syria. It eliminates, eliminates that problem. Uh, one other question that, uh, I, this is an interesting one to me, is uh, the whole idea here in Luke chapter 2 of the inn, the innkeeper. One of the things I think is fascinating here about, uh, about Luke's gospel is in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 that is the only inspired account of the actual birth of Jesus. Think of all the what we have in the Gospels. There's one verse that actually gives an account of Jesus' birth, and that's verse 7. And all it says is this, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger because there's no room for him in the end. That's it. Everything else around the story is the shepherds and the wise men and genealogies and responses to, to Jesus coming and Herod and all these various things. This is the only verse. And notice the extreme simplicity of it. It's totally different than the mythology of that day that would exaggerate and say all kinds of wild things. It just states simply, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloth, laid him in a manger. There's no room for them in the end. Now, The whole idea of an inn and an innkeeper has been, uh, you know, memorialized in Christianity. And every every, uh, one of those Christmas pageants or plays that children put on every year, there's always Mary and Joseph, and there's always the old cranky innkeeper, right? You know, opens the door and tells them there's no room. I remember uh, years ago hearing about one of these, and uh, Mary and Joseph come up there. They're little kids, and there's a little boy who's the innkeeper. And uh, the innkeeper opens the door and Joseph says, you know, I've got Mary here, my wife, and she's about to have a baby. You know, could could we please come in and please have a room or whatever? And the little kid feels so bad about it. He says, sure, come on in. We'll make room for you. And um, Joseph, the little boy who's Joseph, knows the story and knows that's not going to work. So he looks inside and says, boy, this place is filthy. He said, I've never let my wife stay here. He says, come on, Mary, let's go out to the stable. And then the story gets back on track. But, uh, you know, all the stories about the innkeeper, but the the word inn here is uh, the Greek word uh, kataluma. And probably this word does not describe what we would call today as a a hotel or a motel or something like that. Um, It's used to describe the room where Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. It's used for the guest room of a house. And Luke in his gospel later in the story about the Good Samaritan uses a different word there for the inn or the hotel where he puts up the, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, man who's been beaten. So what we see here in this passage, I think, is not that they went to like what we would call you know, a Holiday Inn or the Motel 6 or something like that. What we, what we believe this is is just some kind of a public shelter or even a guest room of someone's house. We'll see this in a couple weeks when we get over to to Matthew's gospel, but by the time the wise men get to Bethlehem, Jesus is is staying in a house at that time. So it may have been the home of the relatives they were staying with. And so back in that day, the guest room uh, was in the front of the house and inside the house, there was an animal shelter. It was kind of a lower level in the house, but where the animals stayed was actually adjoined to the house. And so it could be that Joseph and Mary arrived too late to get the guest rooms so their relatives did the best they could do and put them in the rear of the house there uh, where the animals were. And it could have been in a limestone cave. The, the house there could have adjoined that. Many people believe Jesus was born in a grotto or a cave. Now, one question I've always asked is, well, if they got there that late and Mary's going to have a baby, why didn't somebody else move out of the guest room and give it to Jesus? And, man, these are some bad relatives, you know. Um, But it may have been late in the evening, and obviously giving birth was going to be a loud, messy ordeal, and the house was already full. It's going to wake everybody up. So probably they agreed to just go back there into that area. Again, it's not, you know, some stable that's off, you know, 100 yards from the house. It's an attached adjacent area where they kept their animals back in that time. So Jesus could have been born in a relative's home. I mean, the place where they kept their, their animals, which were obviously very valuable to them. So the whole idea of, you know, going up to the door and the innkeeper and all that probably is not what's presented here in the scripture. Um, Daryl Bach, who's a well-known New Testament scholar down at Dallas Seminary, in his commentary, he says this, Cataluma suggests that a formal inn is not in view here. The, The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, refers to public shelters where many people might gather for the night under one roof. Luke twenty-two eleven uses the term of the guest room in a house. Uh, the ancient formal inn usually took two forms, either a two-story house where the first floor housed animals, the second floor took travelers, or a one-story building with the stable next to it. The Christmas associations of an inn and an innkeeper do not reflect the language of Luke's text. Rather, the word kataluma or in that's used here seems to refer to either some type of reception room in a private house or some type of public shelter. And since this place was full, refuge uh, was sought elsewhere. So again, you know, when you read the Christmas story with your family, I mean, you have to go into every detail about all this, but sometimes it's helpful for people to know that What happened is Joseph and Mary get there really late, and it may have just been that the the, the guest room was full, and so they went and stayed in this adjacent area of the house, or if the word kataluma just means a public shelter, that was full when they got there, and so they go uh, to this cave where the animals are kept. So it can kind of just inform the passage a little bit for people and kind of uh, get rid of some of the false ideas we have uh, about uh, this first Christmas. Well, one final question that um, this is something I've thought about for a lot of years when I was younger. I mean, it's not something I dwelled on, but I always wondered about the idea of people calling Christmas Xmas. And when I was growing up, I always heard that you should never call Christmas Xmas because the idea was people are just commercializing Christmas and they're taking Christ out of Christmas. You know, just putting the word letter X there, and so. And I always grew up thinking that was a bad, really bad thing to do. You know, kind of like the, the modern day, you know, war on Christmas. People are trying to get Jesus um, out of Christmas. But as I've done more reading about that, actually it's the believers that came up with the idea of Xmas. So this is not some, some pagan thing or some unbelievers uh, that came up with this idea. And uh, what it's based on is the Greek letter chi, that's shaped like an X, was associated with Christ. That letter Chi obviously is the beginning of his name Christos, or Christ, and that became a symbol in the early church for, for Christianity and for believers. In fact, uh, an X would mark the place where believers would worship. They would chisel an X there in the in the in the wood or in the stone to indicate the place where they would worship, and. Um, it would often mark the place where a, a true believer gave their, uh, became a believer or committed themselves to Christ. They would use an X to mark that place. Now, a lot of the early Christians had a basic education and they could read, but as time passed on, uh, people became more illiterate. And certainly as the gospel spread across Europe, most of the converts to, to faith in Christ were largely uneducated and illiterate. And, um, people would not have recognized their own name on a document, let alone the name of Jesus. So during that time, X was a symbol for Christ. And by by writing the X, a man or a woman or a child could easily then express their faith in Jesus Christ. And that uh, during the 16th century, as more and more European clergymen began to document their history of Christianity, um, that the letter X first began to appear in, in Christian writings. And, um, the X could be drawn in kind of beautiful ways as well to express their their faith in Jesus. Uh, one of the reasons why also people believe they used uh, the the Xmas sign back in the early church was ink ink and paper were not easy to come by, and any word you could shorten was valuable, you know, because ink was expensive. You didn't and writing material was expensive, so the shorter you could make anything, uh, the better. But but another reason is that. The uh, x was no doubt because of their knowledge of Greek and history of the church, and it it contained a powerful devotional value for these early followers of Christ, as this X would mark uh, their faith in Jesus Christ. Also, many people believed, too, it became then a a symbol as well of the cross. So it was not only a, a reminder of Christ and who He is, but it also became an important symbol of the cross. And whenever people were martyred in the early church, they would often mark the place where they were martyred with an X. The idea that the, the one they had died for uh, were, were putting their, had their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So whenever I see that anymore, now I, never, I still never use Xmas because I know there's a lot of Christians that think it's bad, so I don't use it. Uh, you know, but in our own minds, we can understand that if Christians use it, it can have a powerful symbol. And I realize probably out in most places out there in stores and uh, commercial enterprises, they probably are using it just to shorten it down and and probably to get rid of Christ's name. But I think it's good for us as believers to understand the significance uh, that that letter X had for, for these early believers. So we could go on and on. There's a lot of questions about Christmas we could answer, but I hope at least a few of these, a few of these that are directly related to the Scripture will help you understand the Christmas story a little bit better. And again, maybe you can take a few of these things as you read the Christmas story with your family this year and maybe explain a couple of these things and help them understand better uh, the story of Christmas. And so my prayer is that all of us will take advantage of this time of year. We get together with your children, your grandchildren, uh, family members. sit down with them and, and at least read the story, whether you go and make any explanation or not. And I think it's a wonderful time for us to all of our families to give a statement of our faith in Jesus Christ and who He is and what He means to us. And I think it's especially important in our culture today that we continue to remind our children and our grandchildren of these great truths. And what a, what a wonderful time of year to do that. So anyway, I hope answers answer some more of those about the virgin birth in Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the incarnation of Jesus, for His coming into the world in, in, in human flesh. And Father, we thank you that, as we think about uh, the cradle, it, it looks ultimately forward to the cross. And we think about that letter, X, that tells us and reminds us of Christos, but is also a picture of the cross upon which he died. Now, you tell us in your word that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You tell us in the scriptures that Jesus came into this world that he might destroy the works of the devil. Father, we thank you that he's come, that He's saved us by his grace and by his mercy. And again, fathers, we gather together in our homes or wherever we are with our families this year. I pray that you'd give us a rich time of worship together and pray for our services this coming Sunday and next week. We pray for our Christmas Eve service. We pray that you'll be glorified and you'll be lifted up and magnified in all that we do here in this church these next few weeks and throughout the coming year. So Father, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for all that you've done for us through Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.